The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum, you're listening to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live. My name is Zafar Iqbal and you're listening to uh, a live version of uh, Friday night today, uh, the 14th uh, of Rabi al Awal, 23rd of uh, November 2018. So the headlines today, as you might have read uh, in lots of newspapers and uh, um, uh, articles, Brexit has been at the forefront of many of the topics discussed. Theresa May is in Brussels to convince her European partners uh, to sign up to a deal. A deal that neither the Brexiteers or Remainers like. But she's adamant that this is the deal that's going to take the country forward. Inshallah tonight we'll talk uh, about what the details are of this deal. We'll talk about what is driving this push towards Brexit. Who are the movers and shakers? Who stands to lose and who stands to win? Also in headlines today, Pakistan. Gunmen stormed the Chinese consulate today. Four people have been killed. And there's been a string of bombings, killings over the last couple of weeks. So we asked tonight, What's the significance? Why is there an upsurge in violence now in Pakistan? Is the timing significant? We also turn our attention to Bangladesh. The election, as the elections loom, things are beginning to heat up. So we ask the question, what is the tale of the tale? And we talk about the freed photographer. Why was he jailed? Right, interesting topics to come, inshallah. We'll have uh, lots and lots of uh, other topics uh, of discussion, of topics that might be of interest to yourselves. And inshallah, we'll get expert views from people from across the countries, as well as guests in the studio. And also we'll talk about topical issues of, uh, of interest locally in, in Luton and also, um, I guess, within the UK. So I guess a lead story today uh, is actually um, actually the, the, the bombings uh, that took place in Pakistan and also a just general focus on activities that are happening in Pakistan. So there's been an upsurge of violence there. So we asked the basic question, uh, is there a connection? Is there a trend? So we'll have, inshallah, some representatives of, of uh, the populace of Pakistan. We'll, we'll be speaking to, inshallah, uh, General Abdul Qiyum. Uh, he's going to give his views on what's behind the attacks, the latest attacks. And we also uh, talk about the video that has been circulating. You must have, uh, you must have seen it circulating on, on Facebook and, and WhatsApp. Uh, it's about a group of workers who are complaining about lack of prayer facilities in Pakistan. Of all countries in Pakistan, lack of prayer facilities, a country that was born... Uh, born without, uh, born uh, with the uh, 
the emphasis on Islam as, as being the core value to, to set up the, the, the state. So we talked to a few people and said, well, what's that about? And, and why is it that in a country like Pakistan, there, is, um, there, is, there are these issues of prayer facilities not being available, while these are, are widely available in, in the European countries? So inshallah, uh, we're hoping to, to kick off uh, on our first topic of discussion today. Uh, and we're hoping to get uh, some correspondence um, from Pakistan. So let, let's talk a little bit, first of all, about the, the Chinese uh, at, attack. Uh, so basically, um, uh, sorry, the Chinese consulate attack in Karachi. So basically a, a group representing um, uh, BLA, which is the Baluchistan Liberation Army, claims to have uh, attacked the Chinese consulate in Karachi. The, the attack appears to have been foiled, uh, although a number of people have been killed. I think four people, including some police officers, have been killed. Um, and there are some, some uh, images uh, on, uh, basically on, on the, the websites showing dramatic scenes of, of police uh, officers and army people being uh, mobilized for that. Uh, also, if you've been following the events uh, in Pakistan, uh, there was a, a killing of a prominent police officer uh, from Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. He was killed, and he was killed in Afghanistan, or his body was recovered in uh, Afghanistan. There was the TTP uh, riots, uh, basically on the back of of the uh, Supreme Court verdict um, of uh, of a Christian who was accused of blasphemy. Uh, and there was obviously the, the assassination of Samuel Huck uh, uh, as well, the leader uh, of um, the, well, allegedly the leader of, of the Taliban, um, who led uh, a group of Taliban uh, who uh, led the resistance to the Soviet invasion in, in Afghanistan. So all of these things happen in a very sh- short span of time. Uh, and what we want to ask, I guess, uh, the fundamental question is, is why now? Why is there an upsurge? Uh, in these activities happening uh, now, as opposed to perhaps you know um, a, a more relatively calm period, perhaps uh, in the last sort of few years or so, well, what's happening now in that region, uh, which has pre- precipitated this? Now we have uh, uh, we have on the line Nushad, brother Nushad. He's he's a pilot and a psychologist. I think we we have had him. On air before he has commented on many things, including uh, the case of uh, of the, the the monster who actually raped and killed a young girl. Uh, I remember speaking to each other uh, then, uh, brother Nishad. alaikum. Can you hear me? Yeah, alaikum salam. Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. Yeah, good, good to have you back again on, on Inspire FM. Welcome. Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you. So there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about, and I guess the first we can start off with the first topic. Uh, and I'm not sure whether you are aware, whether you've seen, there's a group of workers in the Punjab region who have circulated a video uh, bemoaning the fact that they're not given time to pray during the day uh, from a factory uh, and appears to be a Chinese-owned factory uh, producing some stuff, I guess, uh, in Pakistan. So uh, I guess I just wanted your view uh, on whether this kind of thing is common and, and what's, what's the actual law of the country in regards to prayer time um, in in workplace? 
Yeah, uh, I, I had a chance to to look at that video, and it was pretty surprising for me. Right. Uh, because uh, my previous work experience, which was with the, the government sector for about uh, 15 years, sure. more than that rather, mm-hmm. and also with the private sector now, as I was working with two, three companies, mm-hmm. not only that the play timings uh, are uh, respected, mm-hmm. but they are also dedicated uh, places that you know that built-in mosques in the factories are there okay and uh, and I'm, I'm not very sure about the law but but keeping in view my experience of seeing most of the companies mm-hmm. that they do they, that they do look after the religious sentiments and requirements mm-hmm. of no of, of even the minorities by the way right so it was very surprising mm-hmm. that uh, how come this thing uh, uh, happened. I, I might like to add here that uh, while the facts will still be fully known at some later stage, mm-hmm. but if this is true, mm-hmm. uh, this may be because of uh, the lack of involvement yeah. of the local authorities. Right. And uh, I'm sure by this time, mm-hmm. uh, by this time, the, this, this would have happened. But may I caution here as well? Sure. By my some previous experience with the with the government, mm-hmm. that uh, in order to um, have some misunderstandings develop between two governments and nationalities yeah. and ethnicities, because you know Chinese China and Pakistani people are very close to. Well, each other. I, I think I, I thought that was a significant factor here because one of the things, uh, well, well, there's a couple of things I wanted to sort of sort of move on to. Uh, one was the that was uh, a case which was highlighted on Facebook where uh, a senior software company or a major software company in Pakistan uh, was refusing or were forcing or, or uh, trying to get a young girl to remove a headscarf. Uh, and I think after the outrage, the the leader of, of that organization was forced to resign. Uh, and, and again, it, it, this kind of, you know, fits that kind of a pattern that, that, you know, in an Islamic country like Pakistan, we're seeing incidents like this, whereas it's less common to see those incidents, say, for example, in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's not very common. And right, okay. uh, these are very segregated, isolated incidents. Right. Um, but but what's, what's really troubling here is that whether it's, um, whether it's over-practicing or whether it's under-practicing, mm-hmm. but the adjective here or the subject here is religion, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the basis of religion, mm-hmm. uh, there are some attempts which right. are being made to divide the country right. and to divide the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is something which I think our religious scholars have to caution about, sure. that on the basis of religion only, while the, the full rights have to be protected, sure. but there has to be and caution to overdo or underdo the things so that we do not fight or make conflicts on a national or international level where they say it is a country which sometimes goes uh, in, a, in a more extreme way towards religion yeah. and it is the same country where the public so that can create a very big uh, wedge between, uh, between the scholars of religion and the local population. You know, we get an impression like this as if the local population is totally non-religious, yeah. and it is just the religious scholars who are very religious. So where are we going? I bet that's not correct. Okay. I, think the fact, uh, I guess the, the, so the, the, the other re- reason why this might be significant is that a Chinese company is involved, and there have been, there have been reports that um, the, the Uyghur people uh, of the Chinese region uh, are being 
in some ways indoctrinated um, to to basically sort of uh, you know fit in with a Chinese view, and and maybe that's spilling over into Pakistan, and that that's I guess another another angle of of this issue. Would you? Um, uh, may I may I add here something? Sure. I have a I had a chance to work with the Chinese government sure. when I was working for the Air Force. Yeah. And um, and I know I know it very well, and mm. uh, I can really say that with authenticity mm-hmm. that the only one thing on the basis of which the Pakistan and China division yeah. can be initiated mm. is religion. Right. Because people know the forces they know. Mm-hmm. That religion is something where they can easily misguide people, and if that starts, uh, there is no end to it sure. because they are not Muslims. Most of the Chinese who are working in, like in Islamabad, where I live, sure. Uh, now on the shops you find the Chinese billboard. Mm-hmm. You know, the properties for and you get, you get a lot of Chinese over there. No, I, 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 I get I, I get I get the Pakistani populace is welcoming of the Chinese, and I think they appreciate the fact that Chinese investment is happening in the company in the country. Uh, but the, the the point really here is is that the ethos, the work ethos uh, of the Chinese companies, um, you know, it, it, it's it's in some respects it at odds with what you've perhaps suggested, which is that, uh, uh, and and I I'm just asking for your your opinion here, right? Uh, is uh, there might be a, a difference of ethos? So may, maybe the Chinese companies operating in Pakistan do not see religion as as a, a significant thing. Whereas in 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 in, uh, in Pakistan it is. To be honest, to be honest, the Chinese who are working here are kind of are kind of very 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 careful. Right. To be honest, mm-hmm. they are, yes, you are right that their work ethics on the basis of religion can be different. Yeah. And uh, they because uh, let me let me share one more thing here. Sure. And I don't mean to I don't mean to uh, criticize anybody here. Mm-hmm. But sometimes what happens is that once they give a prayer break timing, yeah. uh, they say it's from 1 o'clock till 1.30, yeah. okay? And uh, then the people will start to leave their desks or their work area at 12.30, okay, we have to make wudu, mm-hmm. we have to do this, we have to do that. And then they will come by 2 o'clock, right. you know, so. all on the pretext of religion. Right, okay. That so, may so not I, match I, with the Chinese ethos. Right, okay. Yeah, so I, th- I think what you're saying is, is perhaps there is a... Uh, uh, there's an, a bit of an exaggeration and 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 taking the religion as an excuse, perhaps for not giving hundred percent, not giving hundred percent. I, I get that. So I, I guess move on to the next topic uh, about Pakistan, which is the the attack in Karachi today on the Chinese consulate. Again, related uh, in terms of the topic. Um, what what's the what's the situation and what happened there? Can you can you give us a, a your view on on the events? Well, I, I I do not have I have the similar uh, information that's there in the media that there was an attack on sure. the Chinese consulate. Sure. Uh, but uh, what I understand, uh, being a Pakistani and a bit of involvement in the in the geopolitical area, which was one of my subjects at some time, mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, one has to one has to understand that all these are the efforts to undermine to undermine the CPEC to undermine all the efforts between the two uh, countries. Right. And uh, there is no doubt about the fact that there may be some grievances which are genuine uh, with Pakistani people or with the Chinese people, but that does not mean that such attacks or such incidents can wedge any gap between the two. And I would, I would urge 
that uh, while the public will make um, or the social media may make a lot of uh, stories about it, but the bottom line stays that uh, the Pakistani soil will always do its best, do its best to protect the interests of not only Chinese but even all other nationalities who are living here. So yeah. this attack was as good or as bad as on a Pakistani uh, installation, uh, even if it is a Chinese. So it's 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 more closer and more important for the Pakistani government. So, uh, so I, 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 I did have uh, General Abdul Qayyum as well. I wanted to put the same question to him. Um, but I, I guess you touched on, on CPAC and you touched on the fact that there are forces which are trying to sort of subvert that. And, and these, these cases may be seen in that light. Uh, but also, I think um, uh, I was curious about the timings of, of these things, because if you, if you look at the last couple of weeks, there's been an upsurge of activity, I would say, starting off with the, the TTP riots, I guess, or um, um, and, and also, you know, uh, the killing of, of uh, Samuel Haq the ki- and, and killing of the, the police officer from Hybrid Bakhtunfa. Uh, I wonder the, if this upsurge uh, is related to some timings of, of activities that are happening in Pakistan. Say, for example, the IMF is, is in Pakistan. Um, you know, is it directed at that? Or there was an assassination of, of uh, the, the strongman of Kandahar from Afghanistan. Uh, he was assassinated. I wonder if, the, if the, uh, there's a link between all of these activities, and perhaps you may want to comment on that. Yeah, there's an old uh, there's an old saying which says, "When a butterfly flips its wings yeah. in Beijing, it creates a tornado in Texas." Right. So while the while this is an old saying for when the borders were very very far away, we must understand yeah. that not only that what is happening in the Afghan elections, mm-hmm. uh, we had uh, we had an attack every second day. Mm-hmm. In the Afghan elections, uh, we have uh, the IMF, as you mentioned, coming here. Yeah. We have our present government, which is uh, struggling. Yeah. And uh, not only this, but also our uh, our closeness to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And uh, our our kind of going back uh, from our old allies and our more uh, inclination towards the east. Uh, and also one of the murder of that, uh, the... the in, in Turkey, that, that happened, and how the Saudi government has under pressure. So all these things are very much related. But what for a, for a common listener yeah. who is sitting in England or who is sitting in Pakistan, what are they supposed to do? Sure. Yeah. I think what best they can do is, what best they can do is, mm-hmm. that whenever it comes to a criticism towards the government or the, or the, or those uh, organizations who are responsible for the security of Pakistan, mm-hmm. whenever it comes to that, people must have that faith that all best would be done. Right, and what okay. best they can do is... So, sorry. Yeah, I, I, what best they can do is to, is to kill the rumors which, are, which, which, which can lead to any kind of divisions, whether on that, on the, in the form of religion, whether in the form of... Uh, uh, the economical inclinations or any project that we are heading to, right? Okay. Because we, we we do not want to dramatize that. So sure, okay. So uh, I've got General uh, Abdul Qayyum again. Uh, can I welcome General Abdul Qayyum? Assalamualaikum, uh, General Saab. Uh, I, uh, yeah, thank you very much. I, I I guess you're retired, General, or you are serving, General. Yeah, I am a senator. I am a parliamentarian and a retired general. A retired general. Right, so so w- welcome to Inspire FM. I think this is the first time you've joined us today. 
so uh, we were talking about a couple of uh, events actually in Pakistan. We were talking about the uh, the Karachi attacks, um, and we talked about um, some videos that are circulating around some workers that have been denied uh, a space to sort of worship during the day uh, and during work time. So, uh, if you if I can have your comments on the Karachi attacks and whether they are significant, whether the timings of these are significant. Uh, in the, I guess, in a broader geopolitical, um, you know, time frame in the last couple of weeks or so. Okay, uh, thank you very much. First of all, to give me this chance to speak to your audience, I've been to Luton before also some time, and I visited your beautiful mosque and the uh, local Pakistani community there. Uh, so I really am so invited. So what happened today in Karachi? was uh, so unfortunate uh, and it is obviously so it is understood because Karachi is the largest city of Pakistan and it is the financial capital so it is the most important city uh, where we have been able to control the for in the last four or five years by the grace of Allah. Yeah. Now second is that within that city the terrorists picked up the most sensitive target that is the Chinese consulate who are our partner in the CPAC, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, yeah. which is a zipper for uh, maritime and uh, sea uh, line, uh, uh, lines of communication and silk roads. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, uh, there, are, well, there are countries which are against this, especially the United States of America and more so India. And they don't want that this should continue because that links about 62 countries and Pakistan plays a pivotal role and our Gawadar port is a fulcrum and they call it as a Rotterdam uh, of, uh, of Arabian Sea. So therefore, it is a deep sea port which is very important. I was there even about a couple of weeks back we had an international conference there of uh, Asian Parliamentary Assembly. So what happened today, you know that there have been casualties, two, two uh, uh, policemen died yeah. and three of the terrorists were all killed and we controlled it. And right. uh, that, that is what it is. We are quite confident. We will continue with our CPAC. Our relations with China cannot be broken at all. Okay, so p- apologies for that uh, the slight interruption there. So yeah, yes, yeah, so I, I think just to summarise, you're saying that that this attempt was made uh, to really try and and um, upset that relationship between China and and impact CPAC uh, just, uh, on that. Uh, so yeah. so I, I guess the question I wanted to ask is uh, there has been a series of these things happening for the last couple of weeks or so, and I mentioned things like, for example, the killing of the. Senior police officer from Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, the killing of Samuel Haq, um, uh, and and you know the TTP etc. So I'm just wondering, is there uh, is there anything happening this period of time that's made this attack more significant? You know, I, I, I pointed to maybe the IMF presence in Pakistan. I pointed to maybe sort of events in in Afghanistan. Yeah, the point is that Pakistan has given a sacrifice of over 70,000 lives, and Pakistan has succeeded in uh, controlling the militancy and wiping and cleansing the area of federally uh, 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 administrative area, the tribal belt that was never under control, even in the British time, when 
the British rule subcontinent. So, uh, but after having said that, I'll quickly add this, that that does not mean that the militancy is totally disappeared. Sure. Because that depends on the situation in Afghanistan. And uh, especially when more than 50% of Afghanistan is under control of the Taliban, and the border, which is about 2,610 kilometers long, is not being manned from Afghani side. And the bordering provinces, which are bordering Pakistan, like Kunar, Nuristan, Paktia, Paktaka, Nangarhar, there, there is no control. There are militants there. So from this border, we get hold of them, like we killed all three of them in Karachi today. And uh, you talked about Maulana Samuel Haq. That is being investigated as to whether it was their family feud or what happened. It was not really a terrorist attack in that context, but it is yet to be seen as, as to what was there. Right. But okay. otherwise, a situation about five, five years back, pulled our national trade on 23rd March. Our uh, people, our leaders could not get out. The president, prime minister used to inaugurate projects while sitting in their, uh, 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 in their offices. Now, I think it's, it's a free thing. We are, we are absolutely clear. And then India is quite active. You see, the moment there are human rights violations in Kashmir, and the world pays attention towards them and United Nations, human rights commissioner writes a letter, they quickly divert that attention, and they, too, Afghanistan, create problems for Pakistan. General Saab, I'm just... So we are on it. I'm running fast, running out of time, inshallah. So just, I'll have to say thank you very much for your contribution today. It's been very enlightening. Uh, and, and thank you very much for taking time out to speak. I'm so grateful, sir. Very thank you. Jazakallah. Asalaamu Alaikum. This winter, carry out ibadah with the longer nights to pray and the shorter days to fast. Welcome, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live, uh, and you're with me, Zafa Iqbal. Uh, and joined, uh, joining me today uh, is a very special guest, uh, not just a guest, uh, I would say a co-host, stroke presenter, stroke commentator, uh, very talented Sister Rihanna. She's joining us today. Assalamu alaikum, Sister Rihanna. Wa alaikum assalam and jazakallah for the, um, the colourful introduction. Inshallah. <laughs> so, well, I'll just carry on if, if you wouldn't mind. So, Sister Rihanna, as you, as you might know, is, is very active in the community. She does a lot of work uh, in the community, a lot of work for her masjid. She's a teacher in the masjid. Uh, and she has written blogs. Uh, she's a fantastic cook. Oh, is that, that's not sexist, is it? No, 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 I'll take it, I'll <laughs> uh, take it. <laughs> and, 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 and she's a super mum, inshallah. I'll take that one as well, alhamdulillah. Okay, so she's going to basically uh, chip in to the questions that, that we're, we're going to ask uh, around the, the, the different topics that we're discussing today. Uh, but she's here in particular about um, a very special topic which is coming at 7.30, inshallah, we'll talk about it a bit later. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a topic... Uh, for our, I guess, Bangladeshi sort of community listeners, uh, I'm conscious of the fact that it's been a while since we talked about topics from from Bangladesh, uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners will be very interesting interested in hearing about what's happening in that part of the world. 
Um, so I did a bit of research, and then there's a couple of things that have been hitting the headlines. Uh, one of them is around uh, the uh, the pre- in imprisonment and the release of a prominent photographer. Uh, he had apparently upset the authorities, uh, and he was imprisoned for his photos. And I looked at some of his photos, and they looked quite mundane to me. But then again, from a from a, I guess, a third-party perspective, they might look mundane. There must be some meaning to it. Uh, and also this curious story on the BBC uh, about, and I just, I won't give you the details. It's, it's about the head headlines, I guess, would be the tale of the tale, effectively. I want to know what that's all about and uh, why that's causing a bit of a stir. So I have with me uh, in the studio, studio uh, Brother Mahzun Rashid. Uh, Mahzun Rashid, as alaikum. Uh, uh, welcome to Inspire FM, and, and thank you very much for taking the time out to, thank, to come on. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for taking on these two uh, stories from Bangladesh. Right. So let, let, let's let's talk about um, the story of the photographer. Um, now, the article on the BBC doesn't give a lot of details apart from the fact that he was um, arrested. He, he was arrested and imprisoned, and then then he was released. Uh, but I'm, I was curious to know why he was arrested um, and you know and, and what what brought the eye of the authorities on him um, thank you uh, I think this is a quite important topic that you selected um, if you may uh, the listeners and you also remember a couple of months ago there was a huge demonstration going on in Bangladesh across Bangladesh basically by the students yeah. who uh, were asking for safe uh, road, road safety, basically. Yeah. So um, on the eighth day of the road safety campaign, Shahidul Alam, as you uh, rightly introduced him as an internationally renowned photographer, uh, came on Al Jazeera and, and they asked whether that was the only reason, I mean, why uh, students were protesting. Yeah, yeah whether the road safety was the only reasons. And he went on uh, saying that, no, it's not. It is just a side issue. The main issue was uh, the government is an unelected government. Mm -hmm. So the government is an autocratic government, uh, which which is not elected by the people. So uh, there is a a, a some sort of... But there was elections held, though, wasn't it? Sheikh Hasina Hasina was elected. A a, a stage election took place. Out of 300 so uh, MPs, 154 of the MPs were not elected at all. So there was only one party, uh, one uh, candidate, and the rest were stopped from... Standing. But then, hang on, did, did they not participate in the elections? That's why. No, uh, 154 were declared elected because. No, I know, but, but the opposition leader, the opposition party refused to take part in the elections. Yes, so the election means there would be multiple parties. Election means there will be more than one candidate. So uh, some sort of uh, stage election took place. Right. And, and uh, as I said, 154 were not elected, but they were taken on as MP. Right. Just to give them the majority so that they can... But how could that happen? There would have been some I sort mean, of voting process. I mean, this is what, uh, you know, uh, puzzling when a, a government become autocratic, they, they become some sort of kisrophenic. Right. They want to protect themselves by any means. Right. And media was cartel 
um, in every angle. So media has no voice whatsoever in Bangladesh. Shahidul Alom is one of the um, photographers who was aligned with that Awami government. Right. He is from the left, from the political uh, yeah. uh, platform, yes. So he, even a, a person from his standing, who is aligned strongly with Aumili, couldn't, ten, couldn't take on the, the corruption and the, the extrajudicial killing. But, but his photos are just of, of fields and yes, uh, of buildings. Yes, but the, the thing is, the weight he carries right. and, the, uh, and then he voicing his concern on international media. Right, okay. And so as you may remember, he was on Al Jazeera saying that okay, about right, okay. extrajudicial killing, about the human rights violation, about the disappearances. Um, every, there is not a single week or day goes by in Bangladeshi um, newspapers or, or uh, media that you do not see someone disappeared. A white van, uh, security forces with white clothes came and took someone and that's it, no tail. Right, and okay. after that, that's it. And you find the body in a river floating after a month or two. Mm -hmm. So this is the situation in Bangladesh. So now the government became really, really schizophrenic. And even the people from within the government, Shahidul Alam is not government, but they, he is in line with their understanding of the politics. Right. So he couldn't even stand the, the, the corruption, the rampant uh, misuse, looting of the bank he mentioned. The banks were, um, companies were formed and and the hyper, they, some sort of they sold it to the people a company which worth nothing mm -hmm. and asked the people to invest money into it and only to rob that basically take the money and then say company well, these these are allegations that he's made yeah yeah he made on international tv right, okay. and this is why basically so they he, arrested, he got arrested him. because these these were challenged basically absolutely and then he was not only arrested he was tortured Right. And, you know, in uh, I had um, opportunity to study law. Mm -hmm. So in this country, you are on bail means you are on bail in public. You are free to do whatever you want as long as you uh, maintain the condition of the bail. Yeah. But breaking the breaching the bail condition is not a criminal offense, by the way. Mm -hmm. Basically, they will call you back to the cell. They yeah. will be remanded you back into custody. So this is the th in Bangladesh, remind means you will be beaten, you'll be tortured. Mm -hmm. So no difference, he was beaten and he was tortured. And while he was coming out, people saw his, you know, okay. the face was bleeding and so on. So that was the reason why he was arrested. So did, did, did he serve his full sentence or was there, there was public no pressure? There was no sentence. Right. So it is basically a jail term that he faced. There was no sentences. It's just... Uh, while the process, the Bangladeshi uh, judicial system is so, how do I put it, um, inefficient. You, if you are, uh, if someone uh, commit a murder, he would be serving um, a jail sentence. Not a jail before the final verdict was given. Mm -hmm. He would be serving few years because the the bottleneck was created. The hundreds of thousands of cases were there to, to be decided, basically. So uh, y your uh, new cases will be there. And I know from my own experience, um, if a case uh, lawsuit is filed uh, related to land and you would die, your children would die, the case would still be there. 
Right, okay. So the owner will not get the benefit of his land. Because it, because of the case number of yes, cases, yeah. Yes, and the, and so, the, the, the corruption. You say this was fast tracked. This was fast tracked. Not fast tracked. He was he was kept one hundred days in the prison. Right, while his case was being yes. Uh, so okay. and and the notorious law they passed. Right. And this is by those one hundred fifty four unelected MPs. Right. They passed a new um, uh, Internet Security Act, um, and that is anything you say which deemed to be negative by the government. Right. The civil uh, police with white clothing, with a white van, will come in front of your house. Right. Okay. So the, the system, the people are so much scared. I was talking to one of the uh, Supreme Court justices the other day um, about the situation, what's going on in Bangladesh. And he was telling me, if you do come to Bangladesh, We'll talk about it. Uh, this is not the uh, in a moment mm. to talk over the phone. Mm-hmm. So he is also he was scared that if in but, case but, someone. But I mean, there's a lot of countries, including the UK, who are introducing a lot of these internet laws. Uh, who are you know there is a fear that that some of these electronic communications can get out of control. So is Bangladesh an exception in this case? Absolutely. I mean, in this country, you do have some sort of freedom. You can yeah. say whatever you unless something to do with, uh, let's say, terrorism and, and inciting violence and so on, you can yeah. speak your mind. Sure. But in Bangladesh, if you, say, if you la- write two lines against Hasina, Sheikh Hasina is the prime minister of Bangladesh. So I mean, that, that's what I want to get to. So, so are these laws specifically to protect leadership and criticism of leadership, mm. or are these laws there to protect the public like they are? I mean, there's, mm. there's, there's laws... Um, you know, internet laws in this mm. country, in Pakistan, there, there, there's laws like that. And I'm sure pretty much every country in the world is scared of, of uh, cyber yeah. attacks and all sorts of different things. So so are they there to stop criticism or are they there to protect the public? Well, I think it's, it's, it's the earlier one that, the, 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 that you mentioned. It is obviously government is there for nine years mm. and last four years is... Unelected there, and the first year, first one is also uh, a huge um, electoral irregularities were were uh, mentioned by the international media. These were alleged irregularities. I mean, it was alleged on live. We have seen pictures live. The party thugs were casting votes. Uh, I mean, there were no one. It's just the officials mm. and few uh, youth leader of the of the parties. They are casting votes. Mm-hmm. No one else there. They're stuffing the boats, basically. And then was there was there international sort of uh, yes, there was uh, international monitor, monitors who actually no, there was this. no monitor allowed. But mm-hmm. international um, monitors were said that there was corruption involved right. in the in the in the election. Okay. But the second election was rampant. Obviously, there is no question of illegality. It is completely out of the out of the question. Mm-hmm. But the the law they passed it is from the. It is from the sense that they want to protect themselves. So mm-hmm. they know they are unelected and they know public do not support them. Mm-hmm. And if they now, if they were kicked out, there is a, another election coming December yes, the 30th. Yes, I wanted to touch on that. Is it, yeah. is it this month, next yes, month? Yes, December is it? the 30th. Right. And, and people also thinking, and a lot of people were banned, a party is banned from taking part. And also... Um, so different parties or, or different or specific parties, parties? No, a specific uh, one specific party is obviously they are um, 
their sign, the emblem of the party has been banned. So right. basically, they cannot uh, take part. Mm-hmm. But um, the so other which, pa- sorry, which party is that? that it is the Islamic uh, parties. Basically, they are not trying to. They are they so the take Isla- it. Islamic parties banned, but but yeah. the, the other opposition party. The other parties are in Bangladeshi politics. There is groups of parties. Right. So they they say um, um, it's called four party alliance. Right. In another one is fourteen party alliance. Right. So it is just alliance against alliance. So now government trying to create obstacles to form alliance. Because right. yeah, so that your alliance doesn't get bigger than theirs. Okay. So that is the that is the take. And and obviously, uh, the the elephant in the room is India. Mm-hmm. So if India doesn't want you know a party to take part into election, they don't. Uh, I mean, they don't take part. If India doesn't want government to. You know, deal so with how, some issues. How, how is that? Then? How does the India exercise influence in Bangladesh? And what's the? But obviously, Bangladesh is a small land surrounded by India, mm-hmm. and and from the eggs to the everything that you buy on the shop is everything from India. Right. Yeah. Okay. And India um, somehow manipulate the market in a way it's only beneficial to their uh, their interest. So, for example. Indian, um, let's say trains, Indian uh, trucks with. The but I mean, th- th- those are th- those are kind of economic things, and yes. I can imagine India being in a strong position would actually try and benefit as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But but Absolutely. then, then to say that they that they are game changers in in the elections and government in India, mm. that that's a that's a different allegation. Isn't well, it? well, as you may remember, I remember last uh, few years ago, last time Awami League was um, elected and the Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina went to India. But she, she's aligned to India, isn't she? Yes, the, the, she is obviously, uh, Awami League is considered to be the best friend of India. Right, okay. So right. Uh, it's a political, as you may know, Awami League from the, the divorce from Pakistan, mm-hmm. yeah, that Awami League aligned to Congress all the way. Right, okay. So, um, and even the BGP, BGP is a, it's a right-wing Hindu yeah. nationalist party, and and they only friend for BGP in Bangladesh is got to be Awami League, because right. the, the rest are not, um, you know... And, and, uh, and what, what is the spectrum of the rest of the parties? And you've got the Islamic parties, obviously. Yeah, the Islamic parties, I would say they have, uh, in terms of... Is, is it just Islamic parties, or is there other sort of secular parties who are... Uh, uh, the other sort of secular parties are there, but they are just one-man shows. Right. Parties but, with but few there, hundred there was, supporters. You know, the, the previous pri- uh, prime minister... Um, yeah, Khaleda Zia. Khaleda Zia. Is she she's still a political force or not? Yes, yeah, she is behind bar. She is obviously a, a false claim uh, given, you know. Uh, oh, she's been arrested. Uh, and she's and been arrested in and she's put into bar basically. Her son is in England. I think. And so her son is exiled in England. So her party uh, is some sort of in disarray basically. So right. they are with aligned with some other parties, including Jamaat Islami, the political party that I mentioned, mm-hmm. the Islamic one. So um, Jamaat Islami obviously leveled as the collaborators of mm-hmm. the 71 war. And that is, you know, the one of the controlling um, uh, narratives yeah. narrative was to blame Jamaat Islami, not yeah. because they are Islamic. They blame that they are, they are the collaborators of the Right. Uh, to discredit the, them, yeah. Yeah, of the of the seventy one war. They are the one who caught fire to their people's houses and they are the one who mm. involved in killing and rapes and so on. Mm. But uh, the history tells us a different story. 
Right. History tells us different story, as we know from Indian writers, uh, mainly. Uh, I'll come into it. Uh, there is a famous um, Indian writer who uh, wrote against this, obviously. But in our point, uh, what I would uh, you know li- um, would like to highlight that the government become schizophrenic and government is too protective now and this is why they uh, well, enacted sounds that like piece what of you're law. saying that the opposition is in a bit of a disarray as well mm. well so i i didn't know a lot about this and i spent some this afternoon reading about it and the interesting mm. thing is, is although the british media seems to cover pakistan mm. bangladesh is not covered in the same way which i kind of looked up yeah. today because there isn't that much coverage of it but what it does seem clear is actually the the problems that Bangladesh is having now stem right back to partition yeah. and that alliance with India and the people who want power have used that to gain leverage and control in the country ever since. And the interesting thing about um, Hasina Sheikh is she has a pattern and every time before elections there's a ramping up of the and when, when, when the brother talks about unelected representatives it's not that they just kind of go and sit down it's that the opposition is removed so that they can yeah. just go and take which, up which is the impression which I'm is, getting is yeah that. which is so they can just go and so either you're put in prison or there's a new law or something mm. happens and but, people but are just, automatically just to, bring, just to make it fair the opposition in Pakistan has been in prison as well yeah, so. mm. yeah well, and, and it's, there's a sort of similar scenarios going on there but what what I would wonder is Hasina Sheikh has in the UK a influential relative mm. yes and that influential relative sits in the Houses of Parliament. And there are some pretty horrendous allegations against Hasina Sheikh. How much have British Bangladeshis sought to um, speak to Tulip Sadiq, yeah. to ask her to influence? And actually, she has, I don't know whether she still does, but in the past, she has aligned herself to her aunt's party and has called herself a representative in the UK of the same party. I don't know whether you remember, uh, there is a story um, that Channel 4, uh, Channel 4 was asking her to, there was a famous two Bangladeshi, uh, one of the uh, person who's disappeared called uh, a barrister, another one, a big radio general who has disappeared as well, uh, I think about three years ago. So radio f- uh, Channel 4 took it basically to her and she was like, look, do you know who you're talking to? I am a British MP. I'm a British MP. And I don't do I mean, were they my constituents? And and they said, no, you are not their constituents, but you are the niece of the Prime Minister of Bangladesh. And you do have leverage. And you say you fight for human rights and freedom and so on. And where are the freedoms of those two people? They are high ranking. A big dear general who would have been, if there is a, a good government in power, would have been the chief of the chief of the uh, military. Mm-hmm. And another one, a learned barrister, uh, who was also debased. Till now, there is no clue whatsoever of their existence. So, and she obviously completely denied that she has any connection whatsoever. So, but, but previously she did say she her role model in politics is her aunt and she went to visit um, Kremlin in Russia with her aunt as a as a delegate from Bangladesh side so there is a, there is, I guess a link there absolutely is, yeah. there, there is a clear connection and I think there's a, there's a I guess uh, maybe a conflict in, in terms of policy and, and, and outlook. 
uh, when it yeah. comes to UK and and, uh, and, and Bangladesh. Uh, I, I just quickly want to turn to the next story, which was which is again uh, reported on the BBC regarding this um, uh, the misspelling of the word mm. tail uh, to by one of the cinema. Mm. Um, outlets, yeah, uh, and and it's a massive sort of um, uh, case against a, yeah. a financial case against the. the um, well, again, look, election is coming. Yes, yes, and they know yeah. it is all a choreographed, measured move by right. the uh, government. Right. And why forty something years gone? Now, why the daughter's tale? Mm-hmm. Daughter's tale is just to tell people that look, we suffered. Mm. We did this, we did that for Bangladesh. But look, they were, however, the, the Sheikh Hasina and her family was right. under the protection of Pakistani army during the nine months of the, uh, the, the war. And, uh, and, and um, uh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman was imprisoned or uh, looked after in the prison in Pakistan. So they, they were protected so, right. so, so, the, so the, okay, sorry, I get the significance now. So, the significance is this story is about Sheikh Hasina, right? And, and, and basically, um, it's meant to have gone out, you know, leading up to the elections, but the misspelling has caused uh, a little bit of a, um, I guess a sort of a, a well, saving of a face yes, type of situation. It's, it's not, I don't think it's uh, taken on by the government. This is, you know, some, um, some uh, some uh, people who In, individuals would, that's right yeah. individual who would like to be um, get focused by others. The look, this is the person who must have loved Sheikh Hasina and her government. Otherwise, he wouldn't have taken on you know yeah. this issue. So some people uh, try to get uh, you know media spotlight or attraction by their government or her uh, you know her party, and this is one of the reason. I would say that the person was taking saying that uh, he's gonna, you know, sue. so it's, it's suing for large sums of money, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it's, it's just a simple, we'll say typo. Yeah, it's right a now. mistake, and 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 the whole film. I never, uh, I mean, um, I've seen that film. The whole film is about their story, their struggle, how they gave everything yeah, for but, Bangladesh. But I, I get, I get why it's significant, right? Because it's it's about uh, it's about a very sensitive topic. Uh, and then a, a typo, um, you know, on a, you know, mm. in, on, a major in, on, thing. on a major thing could yeah. cause cause this. And I think I, I get that now. I think it's more more clearer than. But if we if we look at uh, the look, um, the sister mentioned Tulip Siddiq. Yeah. Tulip Siddiq was a councillor in Camden Council, yeah, yeah. where she would get wages or around eight to ten thousand pound a year. Mm-hmm. But she has a, a property in Golders Green. She had a property in Russell Square. So if we look into it, those were in the, the flat in Russell Square could cost up to two million pounds. Right, I think we're probably going into so a, a, a... A different a, tangent, obviously, but yeah, corruption... I'm running, I'm running out of time. I've got about 30 seconds, uh, inshallah. So, so I, I think it's been, a, it's been a good topic. It's been a, a learning curve for me, and I'm sure Sister Rihanna did some research and, and we're a little bit wiser to the politics of, of Bangladesh. And inshallah... I think in in the coming weeks and months, uh, I guess leading up to the elections, I think we probably need to hear a lot more. Uh, and just to sort of clarify, we we did actually invite a a journalist from uh, from Bangladesh. Um, he did agree to to come, but could not be contacted nearer the time when we could get him on there. 
Right, we're going to take a short break, inshallah, and we'll be back right after these messages. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM uh, with me, Safar Iqbal, and Sister Rehana. Uh, and you are listening to Friday Night Live. Uh, and this is Inspire FM. And we're going to talk about what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about Brexit. Because Brexit's been coming, every news outlet you can think about has been talking about Brexit. And, but the thing is, I don't know anything about it, to be honest. I don't know, you know, what it's all about. When you say, well, all about, no. I know what it's all about, but I don't understand who stands to gain, who stands to lose, who who are the movers and shakers. So uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, the prime minister has come up with, from what I understand, with some sort of a, a plan, details which uh, I don't think many people understand. Um, the Brexiteers don't like the, the proposal uh, and the Remainers don't like the proposal, but Theresa May thinks this is the best solution, uh, and she's gone ahead and she's tried to she's trying to basically get the Europeans to buy into it, right? So that that much I can understand superficially. I want to get to the brass text really. I want to get to the uh, get to who are the movers and shakers? What is the detail in the proposal? Who's going to benefit? Who's going to lose? Is the country going to benefit, right? Or a group of individuals? Who are who have been pushing for this all along, going to run right uh, and basically uh, benefit from it. So uh, some of these things, I'm hoping, would be clarified uh, by somebody who knows a little bit more than me. And and I've just sh- shared my ignorance about the Brexit, the whole Brexit thing, uh, with yourselves. Uh, we have Dr. Stephen Barber, uh, who's a senior, uh, a principal lecturer. Um, at the and the director of the MBA at the Luton University. Uh, welcome, Dr. Stephen Barber. Good evening, University of Bedfordshire, yes. <laughs> what did I say? Bedford, did I? Luton, Luton, the old name, yeah. yeah. Oh my word. You know something well, that's writ- that's written on my scrib sheet here. It's not my fault. I've just I've read it <laughs> out. Your age. I read it out. But then again I like Luton anyway. I like the Luton University label. But, but yeah, for, well, it's, it's yeah, it's it's uh, bigger than that now. Obviously, uh, stretching uh, beyond Luton, but uh, yeah. Right. Okay. All right. I think I'm, I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> so, so uh, like I mentioned, um, I want to get to the brass tacks of this Brexit debate. Um, I want to understand um, who are the movers and shakers, who stands to benefit right, from Brexit, um, and I guess who stands to lose. I guess so. Um, if you can, you've, first of all... You've missed one really... You, yeah, go on. Go on you, go. You've missed one really, really important question there. Go on in. The question that everybody's asking once there's been a debate what's about gonna Brexit. Happen? No, no. What's the backstop? What's the backstop? The backstop. <laughs> and then <laughs> somebody stop. yesterday, or the, last week, I think, also spoke about the backstop to the backstop. No one knows what the backstop <laughs> is or, or, well, what the backstop to the backstop is. So I think those are really... That's probably, that's probably the key one. Yeah, so I think what's triggered this is, is somebody in the train uh, we're having a conversation with and he made a comment about, oh, what do you think about Brexit or Brexit discussions? And I was thinking, oh, I don't understand what's going on, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so I'm hoping uh, Dr. Stephen can tell me. So first of all, um, let, let's let's start off uh, with where we are at the moment. So Theresa May's got a proposal. 
What's in the proposal? Well, bear in mind, the proposal that you're talking about is just the withdrawal uh, agreement. It's just the bit that gets us, uh, as a country, out of um, uh, our membership of the European Union. And then, once we have left, uh, we start that process of the... um, uh, the, the trade uh, arrangements and the trade agreement that will be in place thereafter. Um, and this is two long years, of course, after the uh, the referendum. And the referendum, which and I think this probably is the heart of your your, your question, where, where are we and why are we where we are? Yeah. Um, and it's because that referendum was phrased in such a, a broad way that it, it, it wasn't precise what it was that that uh, but, but there's a more fundamental question isn't there you know, why why uh, what was wrong with being in in europe why was there such a push to get out and and who 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 is actually pushing for it and what what why would how would they stand to benefit really well if you if you this is a i mean a long a long question that goes right back to um uh, throughout Britain's membership of the uh, of the European right, Economic okay. Community, as it was, but uh, I think you can see within the Conservative Party a good twenty year um, uh, sort of battle between the wings of the Tory Party, those that are pro European and those that, that are anti European, and it has at various stages threatened uh, the cohesion, the cohesion of the Conservative Party. And that was the position that, that David Cameron found himself in as Prime Minister in, when he was leading the coalition, right. uh, was that he had significant numbers of his own party that were quite anti-European. Yeah. Uh, and but but why, why, why would they be anti, anti-European? Though? That, that's what I'm trying to get at. So, so I, I'm thinking nobody acts without... Um, you know, without sort of personal gain, I guess, at the end of the day. And I'm thinking... Well, I mean, look, philosophically, for, for both the the left and the right, if you mean, you know, the, the, the kind of hard left and the hard right of, of within mainstream British politics, the EU is problematic for, the, for basically the same reason, and it's right. that it gets in the way of their... I mean, I, I hesitate to use the word fantasy, but it gets in the way of their, their kind of... Uh, uh, utopian ideas of, of the politics they would like to see. And for the right, the EU gets in the way of uh, that kind of small state, um, low-tax, Singapore kind of model of uh, running a, an economy. And for the left, you know, and this includes perhaps Jeremy Corbyn, um, the EU gets in the way of that that, that idea of, of being able to nationalise and, and plan the economy and, and run it in that kind of socialist way. Um, so, so there's ideological reasons that you see at, at the um, at the periphery of British politics. The centre of British politics across all mainstream political parties has, for a long time, been very pro-European. Um, Tony Blair was very pro-European, mm. and of course, what Tony Blair did very successfully was make the case for Britain in Europe. But actually, he and many politicians, many prime ministers, including David Cameron always failed to make the case for Europe in the UK. And Europe has long been a, um, uh, it's something that's it's, it's a very easy bit of rhetoric for politicians to roll out and criticise the EU and blame the EU for, for different things. Um, and, and I think David Cameron himself was, was pretty guilty of that. Which is one of the reasons why he really struggles in his renegotiation, as he tried to do before the, um, uh, the referendum. So in 2013, when David Cameron announced that referendum in his Bloomberg speech, he did so not for 
real policy reasons, uh, right. but he did so for his own party political reasons. Right. Okay. And that was that UKIP were threatening many of his marginal seats. There were those in his party that really wouldn't stop banging on about Europe. And so to try and close down the debate, he announced a referendum, in-out referendum, that would take place after the next election. And there he was running a coalition, and he must have thought, well, actually, the chances are I might not win the next election. If I do win the next election, chances are I won't have a majority. And if I don't have a majority, I'll probably be in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, and I'll be able to blame Nick Clegg, and, mm. and it won't have to happen. But, of course, right. he won a, won a majority, and it had to happen. Um, and, and so, I mean, that, that's a kind of potted history of, of yeah, where right. we are and where we got there and where ideologically there are um, uh, pro and anti-Europeans within the political spectrum. So, um, hi, Stephen. Um, just you've given us a nice little history there. Um, but here we are, two, two years down the line from uh, vote leave EU. Um, Theresa May has come up with this plan um, and we have slowly seen government kind of sort of fall away around her. Um, what happens now? <laughs> well, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Uh, the the, the, the uh, honest answer. Um, but what happens now is that, that Theresa May has come back with a proposed withdrawal deal. And uh, having kind of maintained this line for two years of Brexit means Brexit, which was, of course, meaningless, but actually has sustained her for, for two years, mm. um, has come back with a deal which has actually, actually for once united both wings of her party because both the Remainers and the Leavers in her party both think it's terrible. Um, <laughs> and they think it's terrible in a sense because, uh, well, for, for the... Uh, for, for the leavers, actually, it doesn't. It, for them, they're not leaving. Yes. You know, they still have to be uh, part of the European institutions to some extent, and certainly have to um, fall under the jurisdiction to, to some degree of the European uh, Court of Justice. Still have to uh, abide by uh, rules. And for the Remainers, you think, well, why are we doing this? What what we're doing is remaining within certain parts of the. Uh, European Union, and actually maybe still enjoying some of the benefits, economic benefits of being a member of the European Union, but we're giving up, importantly, our voice. We're giving up our say, our place at the table, our votes, uh, our MEPs in the European Parliament, our commissioners on the Commission, and uh, the voice on the, the Council of Ministers. Why, why would we do this? It's, it's actually putting us in a um, a, weaker a, a much weaker position, a palpably weaker position than it was before. And interestingly, even Dominic Robb this morning, the, uh, the former Brexit secretary, said, well, actually, give me a choice of uh, Theresa May's deal and uh, remaining, you know, and bear in mind he's a, an ardent leaver, I would just remain. You know, there, there is no benefits from, from this deal. Mm. Um, so <laughs> she, so, so she's left with the position of having to bring this to Parliament there is clearly no majority in Parliament for, uh, or maybe not clearly, but it doesn't look like there's a majority in Parliament for backing this deal. Um, and that puts her in a very uh, weak position, which is why you've seen her over the last few days trying to appeal over Parliament, over her party, and appeal to, to people to, to back this. Stephen, do you think this kind of rhetoric from, from people like Dominic Raab, but we've seen it across the kind of, um, you know, the, from, a, from across the kind of Brexiteer media as well, that, well, you know, if this is going to be our, how we leave, then we may as well stay. Is that mm. a, I'm going to save my face because I know that 
um, I know that the path that we wanted to go down is is not going to be as easy as I said it would be. Let me blame the safe face by blaming Theresa May, and um, we can all carry on as usual. Uh, or am I, I too cynical? <laughs> I, I think you're probably too cynical. In in, an, <laughs> in in one sense, you're too cynical in that those people who want to, I mean, ideologically want to leave, um, really do want to, you, you know, um, <laughs> move to some sort of kind of fantasy world that that um, that they see as, uh, you know, some sort of buccaneering Britain that that's making trade deals here, there, and everywhere. When, when India was still the East India Tea Company. Oh, that's exactly, exactly. <laughs> some, some sort of golden age that never was, you know. Um, uh, you, you know, it's nonsense, but, but, <laughs> but there's clearly that, that, that kind of ideological vision. Mm. On the other side of it, and this is perhaps to your more cynical point, um, those who campaign most fervently for leave... Um, clearly gave the impression that this would be very, very easy. I mean, I think, um, was it Gerald Batten, who's now leader of UKIP, said this will, this will be the easiest deal in history. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll sort it out over a cup of coffee one afternoon. And, and clearly it's not. It's really complex. Mm. Um, you've got 40 years of Britain's engagement with uh, one of the most uh, integrated economies, if not the most integrated uh, set of economies um, anywhere in the world, the biggest economy in the world, um, heavily regulated uh, right the way across. And, it, and it's very, very difficult to simply withdraw from that yeah. um, without it causing huge uh, problems for business, for uh, public services, for, for you know, the movement of people, for the traveling and absolutely everything. You know, mm. uh, I mean, it came, came to something that someone pointed out a few days ago that you know, the, the photographs on, on cigarettes that, um, uh, you know, horrendous things and try and put you off smoking with yeah, yeah, lungs yeah, and yeah. what have you. Well, all the copyright of those are owned by the EU. So, oh, okay, I mean, just okay. something as simple as that. Stephen, one thing I do the, understand, is, sorry, so one, one thing I do understand is, is that like, the complexity of the Northern Ireland issue, because, um, you know, you, you can't have... Uh, we can't have, can't not have a, a permanent border, uh, and and have sort of two tax regimes. I guess, isn't it? You have to have a border, I guess, uh, to to monitor tax regime, and and that that question is never going to get resolved. So so there's a prospect that the old troubles in Northern Ireland will come back again if that that question is not resolved. So from that point alone, this this leave situation is is impossible. Yes, I mean, I think perhaps the most impossible conundrum that that's been negotiators have had to face as part of uh, this process is the position of Northern Ireland. Um, and, and that's not only for the, the very obvious reasons that, that you've got the Good Friday Agreement, uh, where you have uh, clearly no border then between um, the North and the Republic, um, and there's that danger of putting it back in place. But the additional complexity that here we have a Prime Minister who is uh, yeah. leads a, a minority government and is sustained in office by the DUP mm. who demands um, so both that she, she withdraws from the EU and that, that there isn't a border there. You know, it, it's, it's a kind of... Um, so it's is, 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 just, just to clarify, is, is DUP in favour of a hard border or not? Um, <laughs> they would say no. Um, oh. and, and clearly that's... Uh, that's their position. Their, their their very strong red line is, of course, that the that Northern Ireland 
remains part of the United Kingdom, and, and there isn't any uh, distinction between um, Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And, and actually how this um, has been negotiated, while bringing Britain, uh, or maintaining Britain in, in a relatively close relationship with the European Union, it has started to at least threaten the cohesiveness of that uh, of that part of the United Kingdom. So what? What's, um, so what? What? What is the? What's the backstop? Then it sounds like a bit of a fudge. Then does it to to stop that? Well, that, yeah, yeah. That it hard, comes hard... down to it comes down to trade. And uh, while while we talk about the Northern Ireland border, whether it's manned or not, whether we talk about that as a border between the United Kingdom and Ireland. Of course, it's not. If it were just a border between the United Kingdom and Ireland, it, it would be much less of a problem. What we're looking at there is a, is a border between the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe. Mm. And within the European Union, as you know, you have right, uh, right, yeah. free movement of trade, of goods, of people, of capital. Mm. Um, and, and that flows through any border within the European Union. Now, as soon as Britain is removed from yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the European Union, uh, you have to have borders. Mm, and yeah. of course, then you've got this problem, well, well what do you do about, about that? So, um, uh, yeah. at the moment, you've got the UK and Ireland part of this, the, the single market and the customs union. So, it, it means that, you, you know, you don't have to, you can easily move goods um, uh, across borders because they have the same standards, the same mm, customs standards. Sure, sure. Um, uh, that obviously is, is at risk um, because of, of, of Brexit. So the, the, the backstop's in place to prevent that from happening. So you won't have to have um, a, a, a hard border. Right. So I, I think it's, it's, for the sounds of it, it's like a bit of a fudge, really, isn't it? Because like, where, where, so you have to have a, a border, whether it's hard or logical, but where do you draw it? Do you draw it north and south or you draw it within the... Um, the IRC, I guess. Uh, well, that, that, yeah, you can't draw it down the IRC because, because well, not, yeah, exactly. not the DUP. Actually, the Conservative Party itself won't accept that. So you've got, yes, essentially you've got a fudge which, uh, which keeps, which at the last resort, and it's, it's, I mean, I think the Prime Minister tried to describe it as some sort of insurance policy, but at the last resort, um, Northern Ireland maintains uh, that, those sort of customs um, arrangements with the, uh, with the rest of the EU. Um, and and uh, politically, that's unacceptable to, uh, to Scotland to for a start. And, you know, not, not not just the DUP, but unionists in uh, in the Conservative Party as well. Right. Okay. And I, I guess I think that the, the Scottish nationalists have been making some noise as well, haven't they? In terms of, you know, if, sorry, who have the 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 Scottish nationalists? Because if you know, if, if Northern Ireland gets that special deal, then why doesn't Scotland get that special deal? Quite, yes, right. indeed. And, and you know what? <laughs> and you could make the same case for, perhaps in, in, in slightly less nationalistic terms, but you could make the same case for London. Yeah, um, which that has would a, be a odd, wouldn't it? a population than, than all of them combined, uh, and a much yeah. bigger GDP, and, and of course overwhelmingly voted to remain. So, yeah, you, you see this different parts of, of, of the UK saying, well, actually, this isn't what we voted for. Um, and um, um, if Northern Ireland... Uh, has special treatment, then, well, hold on, we, we, we can't accept that. And that's, again, not just coming from the Scottish Nationalists. You see that coming from Scottish Tories, and Ruth, Ruth Davidson's uh, uh, Scottish Conservatives have been making that point, who are generally are very pro-European. So what, what, one other thing I've noticed, really, is that 
And one of the appeals, I guess, to, to the fringe of the UK population is around, well, stopping the European migration to UK, immigration to UK, and getting control of the borders. Uh, now, from, from all I've been hearing uh, is that that's driven by the fact that there's lots of Eastern Europeans coming to the UK. Well, we'll put a stop to that. But we're willing to open up the borders to, to the rest of the world. So that doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> well, um I, I think it's, it's a lie. That's that. why it's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think it's undeniable that uh, in in that referendum campaign, the most powerful message that the uh, Leave campaign were able to mobilise was essentially around free movement. It was around immigration. Yeah. Um, and you'll know that for many years now, I mean, David Cameron's government announced something that it knew it couldn't possibly achieve, but it announced it because the the announcement was popular, which he was going to bring. Uh, immigration down to the hundreds of thousands, if you remember that. And of course, yeah, it could right, have yeah. been achieved. Or well, it could have been achieved, but but uh, <laughs> or it could have been achieved, but not without causing uh, you know economic problems. Um, but even when you, you when you look at immigration figures, economic migration figures to, to the UK, about half of it has historically come from within the EU. The other half comes from. Yeah. Um, the rest of the world. Yeah. And so you see, despite the rhetoric, actually British governments have been very reluctant to reduce... Uh, Absolutely, because the population is declining. Yeah, yeah, but the, yes, the, the population's ageing, business wants certain skills, skills come from uh, all over the world, you know, di different sorts of uh, computing skills and, and engineering skills and whatever it might be. Um, so government hasn't actually reduced the amount of immigrants coming from um, the rest of the world, let alone from within mm. uh, the EU. The, uh, what, what Theresa May has been sort of um, triumphant about in, in the last few days, is saying, well, you know, we, we, we now get control of this ourselves, so we can set it ourselves. Uh, my guess is that uh, it will be set at pretty much the same levels as it, as it was before. Um, and actually, if you want to reduce uh, immig immigration, um, as we saw 10 years ago, there's quite a, a straightforward process, and that is you have a massive recession, um, and th that reduces uh, um, uh, net migration. And, and, of course, one of the consequences of um, certainly a disorderly Brexit could well be uh, slow down. Um, the UK economy, yeah. In, in, yeah, yeah the, the economy and economic growth. Um, so, you know, <laughs> undoubtedly that would be a consequence of it. Um, Stephen, Theresa May's premiership has been a pretty eventful one. Um, universal credit, poverty, international terrorism. She has had a lot on her plate, but undoubtedly Brexit will be kind of the enduring legacy um, of her yeah, time in government. How will, do you think history will remember her? Goodness, I mean, it, it, Prime Ministers, you know, his, when, when you look at the history of Prime Ministers, they often get, a, you often get the kind of revisionism. So uh, those <laughs> that uh, that were, were, were unpopular on the day actually get looked at again afresh. Uh, and those very popular ones get looked at and say, well, actually, they weren't as significant. Um, I think you're completely right, though, that there is one issue and it will, that she will be the Brexit Prime Minister, whatever happens. Um, and her name will forever be linked with really whatever's going to happen in the next few, it, few weeks it, and months. It could have been Dominic Raab, right, who would have been famous for, for actually putting that forward, but he, he's kind of bottled it, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think what was clear from his resignation, uh, I mean, interestingly, he... Um, well, he, he drafted some of it, that, didn't he? 
Well, that would that would have been the point. It, 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 that would have been his job, one would assume, yes. Uh, because you would have thought you would have expected him to have read this before uh, it had come to cabinet. Right, Cle- yeah. Clearly, he hadn't been that involved in uh, the, the drafting. Well, he didn't. Groups. He didn't know about the Dover border, so you know. No, um, well, he didn't know that Dover was a port. Was no, it? But, uh, whatever it was. <laughs> the right, okay, so it. I'm just going to make what one. You could call this a cynical comment, right? But. I want to ask you to make a prediction, basically, right? So, so last time Britain tried to join the uh, the EU mechanism, do you remember that? I'm 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 old enough and young the, enough the, to the remember exchange rate mechanism. Exchange rate mechanism. Yes. And there's one man, right, who benefited hugely from that, George, George Soros. Soros. George Soros. He made billions from that one day. Uh, are you going to make a prediction who's going to be this time then, when when UK pulls well, out? I'm not sure that there's there's the opportunity to speculate in the same way because the. the the exchange rate mechanism was was all about. Uh, but but is the, is that cur- currency back. betting and all of that, isn't it? Do you know? But they were betting against the government, so the government was trying to maintain the level of the pound. George Soros right. was was betting that they couldn't, and and George Soros got it right. Mm. Um, I, I don't think there's. I, mean, I think the greatest risk uh, that we're facing now is that there could be a really disorderly Brexit. Mm. Um, uh, and it could have serious implications right across the economy. And um, well, we, we're going to have to that, ho- hope that level that... of uncertainty is is what I think most business fear. Right. Okay. Um, I'm run, my, running out my, of time, my... uh, uh, Doctor <laughs> Stephen. I'm going to have to thank you very much for uh, in enlightening half an hour. I think a little bit more wiser, but not completely wise. I would say we'll have to have you back. <laughs> we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to have you back. I probably have, probably got, need to go on a course to try and understand all of all of Brexit. <laughs> uh, but, but thank you very much for taking the time out and speaking to us today, uh, Doctor. You're Stephen. very welcome. Thank you indeed. Nice to talk to you. Listeners, uh, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about things a little bit more close to the home. Zakahat, alaikum, and we'll see you in few few minutes. Get your car serviced. If your car is due for a service, get it done before winter. This show was played live on Friday night. Now we are going to play the repeat of Friday Night Live. Please do not call or text to participate in the show. Any announcement made in the show may now not be applicable. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM, and this is Friday Night Live. Uh, you're with me, Zafar Iqbal, and Sister Rihanna. Uh, we're going to talk about a few things closer to home, I guess. Some activities are happening uh, in, in Luton itself. Um, so you might have seen a few, um, few sort of posts on uh, LinkedIn regarding some of the activities that Rihanna has, has been involved in. I'm so, not even on LinkedIn. But did I say LinkedIn? I'm you so did, but fantastic. I know, LinkedIn. No, it's not LinkedIn. It's, it's I'm not a, old enough to be on It's WhatsApp. LinkedIn. It's WhatsApp. You can put something like this on LinkedIn, would you? Um, not Pe- people, you're... people do, but I think it's over 50s. I was going to say over 40s, but I'm there. So over 50s. Well, that just I think describes LinkedIn me. is for the over 50s. That describes me. I don't know why I said LinkedIn. I meant, I meant WhatsApp. But there you go. Okay, so this is about a very nice letter uh, that was sent uh, to yourself. I think it's emailed to yourself, Sister yep. Rihanna, uh, from 
Richard Bryan, regional employee, judge, South East Region. So what, what's that about then? What that happened? It's Richard Byrne. I think he'd probably Richard like Byrne. us to get his name right. But, um, Did I say Bryan? So, <laughs> yeah, there you go. So I was asked um, a little while ago, and as, as people may or may not know, um, I sit on the Bedfordshire Islamophobia Working Group um, with myself, um, members of the councils of Mosque, Luton Borough Council, and... Um, the, the police and a couple of other members. Um, and in the course of that work, we do regularly do sort of training um, and awareness building around um, Islamophobia. Um, I was asked through a, a connection of, of the, the women's group that I also chair to um, speak to um, some judges about Islamophobia and its impact. And these were specific, about 60 judges. Um, and these are judges that specifically um, sit in tribunals. Right, so employment cases, is it? Yeah, those kind of things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of their kind of routine sort of uh, training and upskilling and understanding of the of the changing sort of landscape um, around them, which very much uh, influences their work. Um, so I, last week, um, went and saw these um, men and women uh, had a really, um, really kind of interesting sort of hour, couple of hours, um, the discussion, um, me sort of talking through Islamophobia, its impact. Um, And I'm always really um, clear when I talk about Islamophobia because I think a lot of the time um, when we've talked about it in the past, we tend to focus on hate crime. So someone punches you in the face, that's Islamophobia. Mm. But Islamophobia is much more insidious than that and it runs much more deeper than that. And if we think about it in the same way as any other forms of racism, um, and you'll find that I use the the term racism sort of interchangeably with Islamophobia, um, but if we think of it in the same terms, you can start to build a picture of how it impacts people. There's actually lots of data out there about how the negative impact of um, Islamophobia on on people. Um, But what I also talk about is the mood of the country, what does it feel like to be a British Muslim? Yeah, yeah. Um, if we think in the context of how we see ourselves in the newspaper, mm-hmm. how we see ourselves on TV, what are our, what are what are our children growing up thinking mm-hmm. of themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was just actually really interesting to hear the the you know the responses to that. I don't know if people remember um, a little while back, and again Brexit related, there was an article in the Daily Mail. And it um, had a picture of the three judges who um, ruled in the Gina Miller case. And it said underneath enemies of the people. Mm, And I know judges found that really, really sort of Mm. offensive. And that one article and, you know, and it really impacted them and impacted their profession um, and sort of talking with them and contrasting that with the daily barrage. The Muslims get, yeah. The daily barrage of abuse, whether, we, I mean, there are something like three or four hundred mm. tweets a day sent that are overtly anti-Muslim. Um, you know, the, 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 the drip feed through the media, whether it's direct or indirect, TV programmes. If we see ourselves in a drama... I'm either going to be a really yes, re- repressed woman yeah. who by the end will throw my hijab off <laughs> in a jubilant dance or, um, you know, this kind of really, again, subdued mum of the terrorist kind mm. of, you know. So th- th- these, are, these are, you know, our, you know, uh, th- th- points of contact. If you're not in the Muslim community, that's what you see of us. 
Um, so it's important, obviously, that we go out and talk about those things. And, and that's exactly what I did. Um, and I hope that it was... Um, so the, this was, session, where, where, was the, where was it held? Is it? So um, I think they have, they have them all over the country. But this particular time I went up to um, Cambridge. Oh, you, you actually went to, and it was like a proper hosted event in, in New York? Uh, it's, 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 I'd say it's part of their normal sort of um, uh, training and development. And it, mine was one input into that. Yeah, and I think that letter kind of um, alludes to the fact that I think what you talked about did connect with them. I, I really think, I mean, I think it's very difficult, you know, when, you, um, when you're not from a community or when you're not from a minority community, I think other minorities can, can you know, it's easier for them to get there. But when you're not from those communities, it's difficult. But actually, yeah. I think there was a desire to understand mm. Mm. Um, which is important and the desire to talk about it. So one of the other really good things was just to talk about, um, you know, Muslims coming to court, you know, what might be concerns. There is a, a, a Quran there. If somebody, I mean, I might be, well, I might be, many people I think might be reluctant to take an oath on the Quran. You mm. know, there are theological positions on that. Not yeah. for everybody, but some people, you mm. know, might be uncomfortable that with that, um, there are various theological positions on, you know, whether you have wudu or not when you take yeah, uh, hold the Quran. But some people might not be comfortable with it. Mm. Um, so talking about some of those kind of practical things um, as well, and somebody might think, well, I don't want to do this, but I, feel, you know, how will I be perceived if I mm. say no? Yeah, I want to, yeah. to affirm. So, so talking about some of those things, I think was was useful. Yeah. As I, well. I think just picking up on your point that, that sometimes, you know, you, you got you got your overt sort of. Islamophobes and racists, etc., and then you got people who kind of like get passively influenced by it, right? And then you get kind of uh, an automatic sort of reaction when you see somebody of, of difference, yeah. uh, which is influenced subconsciously by what's out there. Uh, but to get to get people to see that that is the case is, I think, sometimes a real challenge. And I think I think what you've done is seems to sort of from the letter at least they've written. Uh, you seem to sort of manage to get behind the lines, so to speak, and and and, and you know make that point, I guess. Well, it, well, it's the start of a discussion, and hopefully, you know, um, they'll they'll continue to learn. But you're you're right about, you know, kind of get even in ourselves. Yeah, yeah. That that lazy that uptake of yeah, that continual kind of that that all that negative narrative. And how much actually you hear, even within Muslims, even within people yeah, of colour, yeah, yeah. who will perpetuate some of those. And actually, one of the things I spoke about even there, and one of the things I talk about quite regularly, is internalisation and the mm. internalisation of racism. So that's either that we sort of start believing all of those bad things that people say about us, that, you know, we are exceptionally mm. bad people, that, you know, there are things that within our faith and our culture that are completely awful. And we start believing those and almost apologizing mm. uh, for for them but um and that that's a response in itself to this kind of you know racism and but but by internalizing what we're doing is we we're, we're sort of perpetuating that injustice and we're supporting mm. that injustice so i suppose there's a challenge for us in ourselves to how do we make sure that we we don't do that how do we decolonize mm. ourselves from our histories from our past um even if you look at within our community and colorism and that if you're lighter you're somehow better mm, that's yeah, part of our yeah. that's part of our colonial legacy and it it remains on and it, it continues to, to to sort of damage us so how do we start to break away from that 
and not just for our sake. You and I, you know, we has been, we're done. Mm. Um, yeah, for the but we, we don't want our kids and our young people growing up with yeah, that same I, kind of baggage. Yeah, and I, I guess one example I find particularly disturbing is, is uh, you know, you know when we say Allahu Akbar, right? To us, it means a lot. You know, yes. To Muslims, it means a lot because you, you pray and you do. Yeah. Uh, and now that's been perpetuated in in two different ways. Now you got one way, which is an automatic link to right. You know, he was he did X, Y, and Z. Uh, oh, by the way, he said Allahu Akbar before. Right. So there's that automatic link to sort of terrorism. To terrorism I say, yeah. right? uh, and then the, this other one, right, which is, which is I think even worse, which some of our own communities beginning beginning to internalize, which is the joking one. You know, like you know. Uh, an explosion and you know Allahu Akbar associated with that etc and, and our own children are beginning to find that you know acceptable if not humorous and I find that you know that is an example a vivid example of where something quite quite sacred has been now turned to something quite quite negative and you know yeah and it's not new um, yeah. so if we think about the p word yeah um, and people and our, the relationship of our our generation, maybe our parents' generation, with that word, and how it is used so openly and fluidly by young people. Well, the, even the N word. If you who, look at the N word, right, it's becoming. Do you know it's, it's it's part of a conversation now, isn't it? it, it and I'm sure there's lots of people out there who is. paid with their lives to, you know, to trying to get away from all that. It, it is, and I, although I can't police um, the. A black community, and I know there are many in the black community who want to, who feel like they want to reclaim that, and that's a discussion for them to have. Mm. But certainly, if you are Pakistani, if you are South Asian, and you use that word, mm. I would encourage you to think about the history of that word, mm. why it was used, and the damage that that word yeah. word did. And what I want more and more young people to do is just to feel confident and and proud of mm. who we are. We are an amazing mm. people. You know, Absolutely. we have, we come Absolutely. from, you know, just splendid stock. We are just, com- you know, the, the thing I say to young people, you talked about the mustard, the thing that I t- say to my young people all the time is you are glorious. Remember this. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we need to keep finding ways of reinforcing that, the but pushing yeah. back, pushing back on the, on, on the negatives. Um, I think for some people, um, internalization is a coping mechanism and a way to push forward through life. Move on, yeah. Move on, and often, um, sadly, you know, some of those, you know, we, we you know, we get really excited about people from our own backgrounds taking positions of power, but some of those people have got there through internalizing mm. racism, and then you see it being perpetuated. Mm. Mm. And I think what what you're saying also is is against. Moving on to I'm a talking about Sajid Javid, yes. Yes, <laughs> uh, segue into Sajid Javid and his comments regarding and others, yeah, and, and regarding uh, and and another. I probably, need, probably don't want to talk about him, but Sajid we, Javid. We can say his name. I, I mean, it's not Haram completely. Um, you know, Majid, <laughs> Majid Nawaz, our brother Majid Nawaz, and it may um, you know uh, we love him for the sake of Allah, but we have concerns about the way that he, um, you know, some of the things he says, and that um, you know actually. When you look at Majid, he is a, um, a massively intelligent man. Mm. Um, he, for me, is just is just lost potential, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, you know, his way of reconciling himself with the world with this um, internalization. Mm. Um, but internalization by throwing us, the rest of us, under the bus. Well, it's, is it's, really, it's reinforcing really that link, isn't it? It's reinforcing the fact that okay, well, yes, there are people of that type from within the community, but.
but that means all of us. Yeah. And it's that internalization, I think, which is dangerous. And I think there's nothing wrong, right, to come out and, and blast and lambast those people and, and you know, criticize the, the hell out of them. And that they're not, you know, um, they're not the, the people that, that perhaps, you know, you would want to be associated with. There is that association, right? But, you know... Um, so, so, so I think, just to give listeners some context, um, Mahdi Nawaz's organisation, the Quilliam Foundation, produced a report last year that essentially created a causal link between Pakistani men and what they describe as group-based CSE, which, by the way, is not any definition um, under law. Um, that report has been seriously cr criticised by some yeah. heavyweight people, but people with real power and influence like Sajid Javid have picked that up and, ha you know, he said that he's going to have a... Well, he's um, ashamed of his, being himself effectively, isn't he? Um, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm one of that community and, you Well, know. no, well, he, 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 this is, this is the thing. So he weaponizes his Asian-ness in the sense that because I'm Asian, I can say this, but I'm not one of those Asians. He then mm. pulls himself away. He exceptionalizes himself. It's all the other ones, not me. I'm your, I'm your, I'm your good Muslim. Mm. Um, and as I say, that's a really, really, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a narrative that perpetuates oppression and injustice. Uh, but but does, it doesn't necessarily mean that we move away from, from uh, criticizing those people who carried out the act. And I think this is another thing that you, you picked up on because you're part of this, this FACES group locally. Yeah. Uh, and then you're in a blog effectively to say, well, these people, they're evil. They are effectively evil. They're they're they're, they're a curse on humanity. Effectively, um, you know, with, with the things they do. Um, but making that connection right means everyone's part of the same. So, same, so the, the same yeah, boat, effectively. So, so the purpose of my my blog really is to draw a line under. If we really care about children, we've got to really care about them and put so them. So this, this them blog the, is on the Faces website, it's, right? Yeah, the blog is on the Faces website, and you can see it um, on the Inspire FM page. You can see it on um, the Faces, which is Faces Faiths Against Child Sexual Exploitation um, page. And, and the purpose of it really was just to draw a line under this discussion um, about are British Pakistani men essentially en masse abusers oh, are you more prone because of the colour of your skin because of your ethnicity uh, to be a, um, a perpetrator of this type of offence the reality is that what that discussion does and I'm not saying for one minute that there are not men um, from of Pakistani heritage like, like myself who are not Muslim like myself who, who don't commit these crimes that they are but they are not motivated by the colour of their skin they are yeah. not motivated by their the ethnicity religion. and they're and not religion. motivated by their religion, by their, their religion. Um, and that if we spend our lives talking about brown men abusing white girls and on street grooming we are missing a whole load of other perpetrators Absolutely. who we are letting get away scot-free right. and we, right. are, we are letting down a whole load of young children who are we've taken the eye off the ball street grooming is an awful thing mm. it you know we, we we've heard you know you and i have both heard personally from victims and families of victims right. it is absolutely harrowing what's happened to those um young women but actually boys as well um but it is one part of the puzzle mm. 
and there is so much of CSE that happens peer on peer. So that's one young person to exploiting another, person. another young person. Mm. And there is so much. And I know parents out there will hear me say this and they will nod their heads. It's happening online. Mm. Mm. Again, often, you know, with their peers. And we've got no idea of the scale of that. But, you know, oh, we God. can guess that it's pretty huge. Mm. Um, you know, we, we dismiss some of it, you know, as boys will be boys and boys sending around pictures and why did girls do it and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, all again, which is just adds to the, the the pain that, you know, young children are going to. But we need to focus on the whole problem. And it's not denial to say that we have to look after all of our children. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think uh, we mentioned FACES, but FACES is basically an organisation which is looking at research research and it's looking at ways to to make people aware uh, to basically uh, expose the techniques and tools used by some of these monsters so that people are aware uh, and to keep them safe and at the end of the day so it's about you know safeguarding the community I guess isn't it and the youngsters yeah so we've spent the last couple of years I think almost all of our massages um, you know uh, imams and leadership have had the training now yeah. I think you've had it yeah, I think yeah. so. Let's um, it somewhere. And, and I know Brother Tarek has had it. So from lots of our organisations have had the, the CSE training. We're now moving on to think about actually how can we talk about this with our um, young people. I'm developing at the moment a resource to use with Muslim young children. I think lots of the, the sort of information out there didn't really fit in with the lived realities of our young people. Mm. Um I've lived reality with you lots of young people, to be honest, but I've, I've, I'm developing a resource, very nearly ready. Uh, hopefully we'll be start, start delivering in, in the new year mm-hmm. um, to Muslim children um, in a way that sort of recognises the, the value that our culture and religion can bring absolutely, to absolutely. safeguarding our, our, our sure, young yeah. people. Absolutely, absolutely. So actually, m- moving on, um, again, around the general theme of Islamophobia, uh, you mentioned there's some, some more... Events that, uh, yeah, so it's, so it's Islamophobia Awareness Month. Um, so we've had a, a bit of a push, and obviously I've I've done the um, training with the judges. Um, again, focusing on our young people. Later on um, next week, we are having a workshop for those who work in the education sector mm-hmm. um, to look at Islamophobia in schools or the impact of Islamophobia on children that schools may sort of interact mm. with so even if it's not happening in schools but i will i can guarantee you that mm. it does um that our young children um and our young people and our children are being influenced by it mm-hmm. um and talking to teachers about how that might manifest itself how that might impact them um and what can be done to support young people and families um and i suppose it was a it's a direct response to um, when we had sort of Punish a Muslim Day back in April, yeah. um, and we found that actually we were, I mean, we did okay in this town actually because we sit down and we talk and we get on with things, but um, you know, it left us thinking that actually we don't think our schools are, are well equipped enough to understand well, the, well, the impact of it. Well, I would say it. not at all, and I, I, I yeah. don't think uh, Islamophobia specifically um, is actually being considered as part of safeguarding at all i think generally it is in a in a broader category of racism and a difference and whatever but not specifically yeah. and i think what would be useful is is recognition that this isn't another evil in society uh, and and as with safeguarding from other evils 
there is a case to be made uh, about. Yes. So, so I think that schools would say that um, we do. So obviously they talk about the various strands um, and religion comes in that and obviously Islamophobia comes in into that. But I think it's important to mention Islamophobia. I mean, you can talk about religion, you can talk about difference and you can talk about, but, but you know. But, I, but what, what I think they don't do is actually recognise it when they see it. Mm. Because I think so much of the discussion has been about really overt Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. Um you know, someone punches someone in the face, they call them uh, an effing yeah. terrorist and we'll see that's Islamophobia. But actually a lot of it happens in much more subtle ways. It, it can does. happen through exclusion. It can happen through jokes. Um, so there's that side of things. But also to try and get teachers to understand how does this daily barrage that we talked about before of negativity affect our young people? Mm. And, you know, one of the indicators of that, right, uh, of how young people feel and how Islamophobia actually, you know, internalizes some of the negatives yeah. is um, you find out when, when children are asked to write stories, what are the names of the characters? Do they choose a Muslim name in the character or not? And if they don't, there is a problem there. There's a problem that that, that child is not feeling good about themselves being a Muslim, yeah. being whoever they are. And if that's if that's not spotted as a as a problem in schools, and I think they are, like you're saying, they're missing... They're looking for the overt things, and they're not looking for the smaller things. And, and you know, what that, what that does, um, you know, I had my CSE hat on earlier, and I'll put it back on now, but it's, it's just as um, relevant to all other kinds of yeah, um, yeah. issues. That when, when children don't feel confident, when their mm. self-esteem is low, when they don't feel valued, and that leaves them vulnerable mm. um, to all sorts of negative influences. And actually, the, the resource that I'm developing um, for FACES is all about saying to young people that the person that you are and all of those parts of your identity, your faith, your culture, you know, um, the, the way that you eat, the way that you drink, all of those things are brilliant that, that you know they are that they, you know, are, who you they are. are who you are and you don't have to separate off those different parts of your identity in order to be valuable all of those things are part of what give you give and you the value thing, the interesting thing is that that if if a person or a child was 100% at ease with that messaging you know who they are what they are they'll they'll be less sort of um vulnerable to messages of difference, messages to of hate or messages of I mean I uh, would I know. would suggest it's the same even with things like, you know, young men who fall into gangs and yeah, yeah. and that kind of um you know, so, so, so that, that's what that's what the whole um, program is, is is around. Really, is just trying to get our young people to value themselves and make make better better choices. Um, but I think I think generally the way the discourse has gone over the last five years or so is actually moving away from that, isn't it? Is moving away. So in, instead of valuing valuing somebody for who they are, uh, it's now much more more about messaging, and it's much more about sort of core. Unifying, cohesive sort of values, uh, rather than not saying that I'm not saying that they're, they're not important, but I'm just saying that that rather than value the individual, this is more of why why okay you need to fit these categories because you need to buy into these values. Yeah, and so, and so you will know one of my pushback over the years has been is yes we can value the things that we share so we are we have lots of shared values, mm-hmm. um, but actually we are different as well. And that difference is part of what makes us brilliant as well. And if you hide that difference, right, you, you are actually denying yourself. 
you're damaging yourself. I mean, that's what we, 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 we you know, our young people are being damaged mm. by that sort of that sort of narrative. Even when I was training these very intelligent people, these judges, one of them asked me the question when I when I w introduced myself. I introduced myself as a one of the descriptors I used was I'm in Pakistani, mm. and he asked me that where were you born, and I told him that I was born in the in the royal county, and um, <laughs> he he said, but why did you call yourself Pakistani? Um, and my message to him and to anybody listening is that we can be Pakistani or Bangladeshi or, or whatever we are and Muslim and all of those other things and still be glorious and wonderful. Indeed, indeed. I think with that, we'll have to end Salam today's alaykum. discussion. Jazakallah <laughs> uh, uh, Sister Rihanna. Until next week, Jazakallah Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org? And follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.